This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 603. I like to take a bigger perspective. I like to look at the whole country and say, what's going on and how does that affect individual markets? And then when I find the market that I like, that's when I get involved and say, what's the ROI on this property versus that? I think, my humble opinion, too many people start by looking at a property, finding what cash flows, and then trying to justify buying it based on whatever macroeconomic stuff that they look at or ignore. What's up, everybody? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Podcast, here today with a Seeing Green episode. On today's episode, I will take your questions, your comments, your concerns, what the people want, and I will do my best to give an answer, taking my advice and perspective into account about what they can do to overcome their challenges and how they can build wealth through real estate. If you are new to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to check out biggerpockets.com. This is the best real estate investing platform in the world. We've got podcasts like this where we interview people that have been successful real estate investing and share their secrets, as well bring in industry experts to educate you on individual components to real estate investing. We've also got a huge forum with tons of questions that you can ask or read that people have asked in the past, as well as an amazing blog where you can read tons of articles written by other real estate investors that all want to help you do the same. There's also over 2 million members that are all on the same journey as you. I'm David Green, like I said before, and I will be your host for today's episode. This was fantastic. In today's episode, I actually have been confronted with a little bit of smoke. So there were some unhappy people that didn't like some of the comments that I made about cash flow, and I will address that about halfway through. In today's show, we're also going to cover topics like scaling quickly without using hard money or what your expectations should be with how to scale safely. We talk about vacation areas or areas that people are moving away from and how to find the right personality of the area that you're in so you can pick the right strategy. We talk about looking at a deal, whether you should sell it or whether you should keep it, how much equity you have in the property and where your biggest challenges are going to come from. And then we talk about, should I keep saving to buy in this market or should I find creative ways to be able to get a deal now before prices get higher and more? Look, today's show is from the people for the people. You guys submitted some great questions and I do my best to give you the answers that I possibly can and then explain the reasoning behind why I'm giving that answer. I hope you guys love it. I hope you join me on this journey and continue liking it. And please stay connected. You can follow me online at David Green 24 You also can follow Bigger Pockets themselves on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on YouTube. They're everywhere. So just put Bigger Pockets into a search engine and see what you get. There's a bookstore with tons of good content. If this is the first time that you're coming here, you're going to love this. And if you're someone who's returning, thank you so much for staying loyal, for taking this journey with me, and for following along. For today's quick tip, I'm going to ask all of you that own real estate to take a look at your portfolio. Ask yourself how hard your equity is working for you. We have seen a big increase in prices as well as rises in rents, but home values and the rent you can get for a property do not appreciate at the same pace. Oftentimes, values outpace rent. When that happens, you can sell a property and buy two or three more Spread your your equity out over several different properties. So now you're going to be appreciating even 
at a faster rate, and most importantly, increase the cash flow that's coming back to you. So we have a metric that we call return on equity, where you look and say, hey, with the money that this property makes me in a year, if I divide it by the equity in the property, how high is my return? Many of you will find if you look at your current portfolio, your equity is not working very hard for you. I'd love for you to sell that property and go buy a couple more, get that cash flow higher and spread the wealth out over several more properties. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rent to retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. We need to double check with Zach, rental retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? (laughs) It's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com biggerpockets. We know, and you all know, why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability. With Plaid certified tenant income and assets reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. All tenant screening and verification is paid by the tenant and done through the desktop and mobile app. It's time to say goodbye to gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. And as a matter of fact, all Bigger Pockets pros have Rent Ready included in your pro membership. If you're not a pro, Rent Ready is offering you 50% off of their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2024. That's R E N T R E D I.com using code BP2024. That's VP, like Bigger Pockets, in the year 2024 to save 50% off of one year of Rent Ready. All right, that's all I had for the quick tip. Let's bring in our first question. Hi, David. My name is Sharon Pace. I'm with 4P Homes, best in Galveston, Texas, and looking to figure out better ways to scale in our business. Uh, We've flipped four properties already. We have two more that we bird into short-term rentals, but looking to find out how 
how, how we can scale faster, um, but yet smarter uh, in this, I guess, uh, market that we're in. Um, we've been using hard money and private money, but it's we're finding it's harder to pay back our private money lenders when we're trying to refinance out of these deals. So looking to figure out how to gain more capital um, and scale a little bit faster. Thanks. Hey, Sharon, thank you so much for this question. I love how honest you're being. What I'm hearing you say is, hey, we got a good thing. We're buying short-term rentals that cash flow really well. So obviously we want a lot of them, but we're not able to get them as quick as we want because after we refinance at the end of the burr, the repeat, the last R, is kind of getting slowed down because we can't pay off our entire hard money note that we took to buy the house. We can only pay off part of it, which means it's tougher to get money to go buy the next deal. So let's break down how you ended up in this situation and what my advice would be for you to improve it. First thing I want to say is there's this this uh, theory that in most things in life, you're looking for three benefits, but you can only get two. So for instance, if you want a contractor, you want one that works fast, does a great job, and uh, is cheap. So those are the three things you want. Pick two of them. Because if they work fast and they're cheap, they're not going to do a great job. If they do a great job and they work fast, they're not going to be cheap. That's just the way that life tends to work. Because if you're really good and you're really fast, you can now charge more for your services so you stop being cheap. And so at different stages in our investing career, we have to value different elements differently. Like when you're new, cheap probably matters more and maybe fast matters more, but you don't get great quality of work. And then you start to want more quality of work and you realize the speed's going to go down. And then ultimately you realize price is the least important. You want the other two. So let's talk about how I look at scaling. You can do it quickly, you can do it safely, and you can do it profitably. Which of those two do you want to highlight as far as what you're going to do? Because you can't do all three. Um, If you want to do it fast, you're going to sacrifice on doing it safely or on doing it profitably. If you want to do it profitably, you're going to sacrifice on doing it safely or fast. So here's part of where I think that you may have been led astray. Um, There's a couple rules to burr. A lot of people think that when you burr, you need to pull 100% of your equity out every single time, all your capital or more to put in the next deal. And if you don't get that, then that means you did it wrong. I don't know where this came from because I wrote the book on Burr, and I say that makes it a home run deal. If you get all your capital out, you crushed it. You should never expect every single time you swing the bat to get a home run. If you normally were going to put down 25% and you leave 16% in the deal, even though you may think you failed, you're still better off than if you put down 25%. If you leave 11% in the deal, you're still better off than if you put down 25 or 30%. So maybe your expectations when you first started to think about scaling were off because you thought you were going to buy a house, fix it up, rehab it, pay off all the money, get all your money back, and bam, be right into the next deal. And you're finding that adding value to real estate is harder than you thought. I think a lot of people are in this boat. And here's where I think that that, where, why I think that happens, where that comes from. When you're evaluating real estate, the easiest part to evaluate tends to be the cash flow. 
I can look at the income. The expenses are relatively easy to control and understand. Uh, the only expenses that are really hard to control would be things like uh, vacancy and repairs. The rest of it, more or less, you can sort of account for it. So cash flow is the easiest thing to calculate and therefore gives us the strongest feeling of security. The ARV, man, that's tough. You depend on an appraiser and you don't control it. You don't know what comp they're going to pull from. The rehab, wildly unpredictable. Sometimes they go fast. Sometimes they go slow. Sometimes they find stuff. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they come back and say, hey, we actually don't have to fix that. It'll be cheaper. Other times they come back and say, you need to borrow a whole bunch more money. There's a lot more that's wrong. Rehabs are very tricky to control. Now, in a burr, it's all about the appraisal and the rehab. You're adding value to the property through the rehab, and then you're hoping it appraises for as much as possible to pull the money out. And this is where Burr investors get messed up is they approach it like buy and hold investors that are only having to calculate one metric, which is just cash flow. We're having to juggle several balls as a Burr investor. You're having to juggle the cash flow you're going to have at the end. You're having to juggle the rehab and how you're going to add value. And then you're having to try to make sure that you get the highest appraisal possible. And with more balls in the air, it's more likely that you're going to drop one. And if you look at it like you have to have a perfect finish, you're going to think you're doing something wrong. But you're not doing anything wrong. You're still better off than the traditional buy and hold investors if you're leaving less money in the deal than they did. You're just not going to be able to scale as rapidly as what you thought. Now, what I think that you will find is as time goes by, rents go up. Your operating system becomes slicker, smoother, and more efficient, so your expenses go down. And you will start making more money on these these properties. They will become profitable. That will give you more money to buy more property with. So if you don't have a perfect burr and you end up still owing some money on the note, you'll have cash flow from the properties to make up the difference in what you weren't able to pay the hard money lenders that you're talking about. Basically, if you give yourself a couple years to build up some momentum, you're going to find that what you think you don't have right now will be naturally happening. And I say this to people all the time is they just think it's going to be easier than it really is to get started. Every new agent thinks that they're going to walk in and in their first six months, they're going to sell 12 homes. And if I say it's going to be hard, they go, okay, maybe in my first 12 months, I'll sell 12 homes. And then they find that they don't sell maybe one or two houses for the whole year. It's very tricky. But when you've been doing it for 10 years, it's very hard to fail. You just have bleeds coming in all the time. All these people know who you are and they're just coming to you and you actually need some help with your business. So remember that as you're building your portfolio, it will always be harder than you thought in the beginning, but it will get easier than you thought the longer that you do it. Okay, next question comes from Nadia Chase. This is a written question. Number one, what do you think about investing in an area where people are moving away from, like Joshua Tree, California, and the surrounding areas? Number two, where do you research whether or not a market will appreciate over time? All right, let's start with question number one here, Nadia. It's a bit tricky because you're sort of asking two different questions. You're saying, well, you literally did ask two questions, but part one was two different parts. You're saying, what do you think about investing in an area that people are leaving? And then you're saying, what do you think about Joshua Tree? And those are actually different questions. I'm largely opposed to investing in an area where population is decreasing. So if in most cases, if you buy real estate and you have significant reserves and you do it wisely, you're, you don't lose unless the one Achilles heel is you can't get a tenant. So if half the population was abducted by aliens and just disappeared, if um, you see what happened in Detroit, where the entire industry was based on one 
table leg and the auto industry collapsed, all those jobs leave, there was nothing you could do at that time if you owned in Detroit to not lose money. There was no tenants. Nobody was living there. So you absolutely want to pay a lot of attention to where are people moving, how much rent are they paying, what kind of wages are they earning to determine what kind of rent they can pay, what jobs are paying those wages, and what's moving to those areas. I talk about this all the time, which is kind of part two of your question. But Joshua Tree is a vacation destination. That's what makes this different. People largely buy short-term rentals in that area. So I don't think I'd be looking at our people leaving Joshua Tree. I would be asking of the population that vacations in Joshua Tree, which largely are going to be living in Southern California, the Los Angeles area, how many of them are leaving? Because people leaving an area doesn't necessarily change real estate values a whole lot. It depends on the demographics of the people that are leaving. So in the Bay Area, there's a lot of expensive housing that's paid for by people that are executives of really wealthy companies like the Google, the Netflix, the Amazons. If those companies move their headquarters out of Silicon Valley, I would be very concerned about the luxury real estate. I would think it would have to change because the people who own it are leaving the state. Now, let's say that people are leaving the state that are at lower income brackets that tend to be people who rent, they don't own. I would be concerned if I own some of the low income multifamily properties in the area because your tenant pool is the one that's going to be leaving. So the question I think you should be asking is, are people leaving Southern California? Because yes, a lot of people are. The city of LA is is falling into disrepair. There's a lot of people that are very unhappy about how it's being run. I don't know it'll stay that way, right? At some point, usually the pendulum swings the other way and people come back. But for right now, that's true. The population is decreasing. But we have such a shortage of housing, it's not really changing home prices. We still have more people people that want to buy than people that want to sell, even with everyone leaving. And that's why we haven't seen a decline in prices. So the question would be, are people leaving Southern California that would vacation in Joshua Tree? I haven't seen any indication of that being the case. The vacancy rates are very low for that area. The demand is very strong. Um, I think uh, uh, people that host this podcast, uh, Rob Abasolo and Tony Robinson are literally building and developing uh a lot of tiny homes in that area and there's a ton of demand. So it's not as simple as are people leaving or are people coming in? You got to look at what type of people are leaving and coming in, what demographic they're in and what type of housing that they are using. As far as where I research that, well, a lot of it, to be fair, I learn from people I know in the industry that do the research. So I'll spend a lot of time talking to multifamily people that are super good, that have to know this type of stuff. And I'll ask them what they see and they'll just, they'll tell you everything, right? These guys are... Uh, analytical nerds that love to talk about it. So I get a lot of my information from there. But I know they get their information from places like the U.S. Census Bureau and even places like um, like online news sources like Fox Business News or CNN Money, uh, Yahoo Finance. Those types of places will often post articles that talk about where people are leaving and where they're moving to, where home prices are going up and why. So the, I, as a real estate investor, I, I'm a little unique in the sense that I don't just focus on What's my ROI on this one property if I run it on a calculator? I like to take a bigger perspective. I like to look at the whole country and say, what's going on and how does that affect individual markets? And then when I find the market that I like, that's when I get involved and say, what's the ROI on this property versus that? I think, my humble opinion, too many people start by looking at a property 
finding what cash flows and then trying to justify buying it based on whatever macroeconomic stuff that they look at or ignore. So if you fall in love with the property because you really want that cash flow, but it's in the Detroit, you find yourself wanting to buy it even if the numbers are saying don't do it. So I just remove that temptation from my life. I look at the big picture. I see what's going on in Detroit versus what's going on in Birmingham, Alabama, or what's going on in Madison, Wisconsin, or what's going on in Lakeland, Florida. And I say, hey, I like those areas. Then I niche it down to which city would I want to buy in or what part of town. Then I niche it down to what price point. Then I niche it down to what type of property. Then I niche it down to what can I actually get under contract instead of the opposite way. So hope that that helps you a little bit and good luck in your investing journey. Hey, David. I'm a newer Bigger Pockets podcast listener and recent pro member uh, looking to start building some momentum. Now, I currently live and rent in New York City. Uh, My career allows me to work remotely on the East Coast. Now, I've been wanting to relocate out of New York City given the cost of living here, Um, but I still want to be in a city with a strong social scene and quality of life. So think Boston, DC, North Virginia, Richmond, Raleigh kind kind of deal. Now here's where my question comes in. I'd like to start some real estate momentum by investing in a duplex or triplex to relocate into. Um, now, given where the market is today for these cities and that they're not in close proximity to me, right, it's hard for me to scope out and evaluate rental opportunities. Uh, what would you recommend for somebody looking to start their real estate journey while relocating? Should I stay patient, be creative, continue looking for that duplex, triplex remotely, or perhaps invest in a condo in one of these cities instead and continue my rental hunt when I'm living in this city I'd like to invest in? Thanks, David. All right. Thank you, Mike. This is a very practical question and I like that you're asking it. So if I hear you correctly, you're saying, I want to leave New York and I want to move to one of these other cities. Should I go buy the duplex, triplex, fourplex that I want so I can house hack in that city and stay here until I find it? Or should I just go buy a condo in that city and live there and then start looking for my next property once I'm already there? I don't know that either of those are your best options or your only options. I think you can get a lot of work done from where you are. My advice would be you start looking for people to help you. I don't know this because you didn't mention it, but it sounds like you're doing the typical consumer. I go on Zillow. I go on Realtor.com. I look at houses. I try to figure it out. I call that analyzing it, even though I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be looking for. I don't know the area. I don't know if I'd want to live there. I spend a bunch of time noodling it in my head. And by the time I come to some kind of conclusion, somebody else bought the property. I think we could just improve your system. I think the first thing you need to do is find an agent in that area that you feel comfortable with that's going to hunt them for you. I think the second thing you need to do is go visit whichever city you think you want to move to and get to know that area because you're going to be living there. Now, I do say in long distance investing, you don't have to visit the area you're going to or you don't have to visit the property, right? There's still some value in visiting the area if you don't know it. But that's for investment property. If you're going to be living in it and you want to know what type of places it's close to, you want to know if you like the restaurants that are close by or how busy the streets are. This is your quality of life. So you definitely want to go visit that place and see which part of town you want to be in. So when your realtor says, hey, I found a triplex, it's over here and they see it on a map, you can tell from that map what you're actually getting and if you like that part of town. Now, when you visit, meet with the realtor. Maybe meet with a couple realtors if you don't get a good vibe off of the first one. Then when you go back to New York, they will send you the properties that you could potentially buy. 
Now you're in a position where you know if you're going to like it, analyzing it makes a lot more sense. You can put one under contract. I don't think you need to move to the area and buy a condo to learn the area. I think you can visit it. Now, if you're the type of person who just says, nope, one or two visits won't do it, I need to really soak in the entire atmosphere and get a feel for it then yeah, moving there and buying a condo would not be a terrible idea. You just got to make sure that the condo you buy has a solid HOA. They're not in any kind of trouble. It's in a good area where you think that if you decide you want to rent it out, you can still make some money on it. But there's some demand. I would recommend buying a two or three bedroom condo, not a one bedroom condo. So you can rent it out by the bedroom after you leave because they're a little bit tougher to cash flow. Um, but, But I don't think that the two options you presented are your only options. Build your team. Find out from your lender how much you can afford and what your payment's going to be. Go learn the area. Find out which parts are zoned for multifamily because that's where your duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes are going to be. And go drive those areas and see if you like it. See what's in within walking distance. And then tell your realtor, here's the preferred places I like to it, live. Tier one, tier two, tier three. Send me the listings that come from there and you can take it from there. Good luck on your search, buddy. All right. We've had some great questions so far. Thank you for submitting these questions. I've got some comments and I'm going to read from previous episodes. I'd love it if you could leave me comments on this episode. So if you're watching this on YouTube, please tell me what you think, what you uh, would like to see, what you didn't like, and what you did. Now, I've asked this on previous episodes and you have been faithful in responding. We actually got a lot of comments um, on a particular show that I did where I talked about uh, cash flow and how I think people have erroneous views of cash flow. So one of the, one of the uh, comments comes from All Phase Landscape and Building Services, Inc. And they said, I really am disturbed by how Bigger Pockets has abandoned cash flow as the most important thing in investing. Feels like they have gotten too rich or too California to remember the fundamentals for smaller investors. Literally everything said in this podcast was in stark contrast to Brandon's freedom number concept and the fundamentals laid out in his book. I understand the game has changed since then, but only because we're at a different point in the cycle. It feels a lot like 2007 right now, and I'm not banking on appreciation. If it happens, that's just a bonus. Why is cash flow unreliable if you are analyzing setting aside money for management repairs, CapEx, and fixed expenses? Now, this, I assume, is coming from when I talk about how so many people, or maybe too many people, think that they're going to buy a handful of properties and retire and not have to work anymore, and if they just find a couple properties, they can be done. And we're seeing massive changes in our economy with inflation in rules regarding real estate and in the way that real estate investors are being treated. The tax code could be changing. I think this is just my opinion that the way things have worked for a long time is going to be changing. I think that there could be a point where the way real estate investing worked changes. And I'm trying to put people in a better position to not end up losing their properties. Now, here's my opinion. This is not bigger pockets. This is just me as David. Cash flow is amazing. I love cash flow. I invest for cash flow. I like cash flow. But I believe cash flow in residential real estate is intended to stop you from losing the property. It is not intended to grow you wealth. So when I what I'm getting at here is if you're cash flowing $200 or $300 a month, it takes a lot of properties to be able to have a, a significant amount of wealth that gets built from that cash flow. And if your goal is to quit your job, it takes a lot of properties before you can quit your job if each of them is making $200 or $300 a month. And when you own that many properties, like I have, 
it becomes a full-time job to manage those properties. So what happens is you trade one secured job for one less secured job because your W-2 income is reliable in most cases and your rental income is not in almost every case. And when I say it's not reliable, what I mean is things break you didn't anticipate. Uh, tenants trash your house that you couldn't have accounted for. You don't know what's going to go wrong. And everyone that's bought rental property will admit you catch them at an honest moment. When they first bought their property, they didn't do as good as they thought. Things broke that they weren't aware of. This still happens to me today. Sewage pipes that you didn't know that you should get checked on end up leaking and cause significant problems. Trees need to be pulled out of a property that you didn't realize. There's a rat infestation that you didn't realize. Like Lots of stuff happens. And if you get a couple properties and quit your job thinking that, hey, I'm making 300 bucks a month in cash flow, I'm good on six different properties. You'll find that $300 in cash flow rarely comes in every single month. And what I'm trying to advise people against is prematurely celebrating the win. You've got a couple properties. That's great. You've got some momentum. You're learning how to be a better investor. You're building your skill level. Don't quit and become a vampire sucking all that cash flow to pay for your living expenses right away. Continue to build. When I talk about appreciation being how people build wealth, that is partly referring to the value of a property going up. You will build wealth faster from that than cash flow. But I'm not only referring to the value of the property. I've said many times, appreciation applies to cash flow too. The properties that I bought that cash flowed $500 a month when I bought them, now cash flow $2,000 a month. Okay, over like eight to 10 year period, I bought them in areas like California, like Arizona, like Texas that were growing. People were moving there. Wages were growing in those areas. So rents went up faster there than they did in other parts of the country where nobody was moving to. Once they're going at 2000 a month instead of 500 a month. I can now start to rely on that cash flow more. If I want to quit my job like I did when I quit being a police officer and I got into a commission-based system, that cash flow was much more reliable for me to do it. And that's all I'm trying to highlight here. I, no one at Bigger Pockets and none me is not saying don't care about cash flow. We don't know what's going to happen with our economy. We don't know if a recession is coming. We don't know if laws are going to be passed that limits how much you can raise your rent or how much you're allowed to make as an investor. There's already talk in California of um, like taxing short-term rental income an extra 25% by the state. If you ran your numbers and you said, hey, I'm good to go, I can retire, I have three short-term rentals, and then that law gets passed, you're looking for a job again. So I'm just trying to keep everybody safe. I'm not saying... Don't chase cash flow. I'm saying don't let cash flow become the savior to the life you don't like. Continue to build your skills. Continue to work hard. Find ways to work at things that you like more. Don't get a handful of properties and say, oh, I'm done. I'm at the front of the race and I can stop. That's what the hare did when it was racing the tortoise. You want to be the tortoise. Slow, steady, continue to live beneath your means. Don't let lifestyle creep come in. Continue to accumulate properties over time. You fix up those properties, less things break, you get more stable tenants, you realize which areas work and which areas don't, your rents increase, your cash flow grows, and then it stabilizes and then live on the cash flow. All right, next comment comes from John Moore. My first few properties didn't really cash flow much 10 to 15 years ago, and I used to feel lucky if I could use some of that money to go out to dinner or buy some new tools once in a while. But now I live on it and don't miss running my painting business one bit. All right. So 
Oddly enough, John here is sort of highlighting the point that I just made. When he first bought the property for the first 10 to 15 years, they didn't cash flow well. And if he had been looking at, hey, I need to buy a property that after all my expenses and setting aside money for maintenance and setting aside money for vacancy and setting aside money for CapEx and setting aside money for whatever uh, surprises come and having the money that I need to spend myself on this property, he probably never would have bought anything because real estate tends to not work that way when you first buy it. But buying it and continuing to run his business, he bought more and more properties. And I presume he got better at doing it. He bought in better areas. He got better deals. He had better management. And after 10 to 15 years, just like what I said, his cash flow probably grew similar to how mine did. And at that point, John exited the game and he said, I don't want to run the painting business. This is the right way to do it, everybody. Now, a lot of my advice is coming from the fact that we don't know what the government's going to do. They're printing so much money. We don't really know if we're at the top of a cycle or if we're actually at the bottom of one. They might print a bunch more money and we could have another run in prices. Just take a second and think for a minute. What was housing worth 30 years ago? When someone that you know bought their house 30 years ago, what did they pay? All right. My parents bought their first house about 35 years ago in Manteca, California, and they paid $62,000. That house right now would probably be worth 500 to 600,000. So it's gone up times 10. That's without all of the money that's been printed and the ridiculous amounts of inflation we've had. So I would expect over the next 30 years that what I'm buying to be worth more than 10 times what I'm paying for it now. And I know that sounds insane because I'm talking about a 2 million property being worth $20 million, but that's because we're looking at 20 million from today's lenses, right? When my parents first brought that property, maybe it would have cash flowed like $17 a month or something. But what was $17 worth back then? It would certainly be cash flowing more a lot now. So again, play the long game. Don't get a little bit of cash flow and immediately quit your job, lose your safety net, go all in on drinking the beach and um, or sitting at the beach and drinking Mai Tais and living the dream and telling your boss that he should shove it. Okay. Like cash flow is great, but it's very unreliable. I have problems happen in properties all the time. And I noticed that certain areas, problems don't happen. Certain areas they do. If I quit after my first three years of investing, I'd be stuck with a bunch of properties right now that don't cash flow well because something's always going wrong. Because I kept in the game and I kept buying, I learned what areas work better, what areas work worse, which neighborhoods. I got better at investing and now my cash flow is more reliable. All right, next comment. California is so frustrating for investors. Yes, I look long-term and don't plan to sell, but we have rent control in Los Angeles. Even worse, restrictions are placed on rent with duplex and multifamily properties. How can a person upscale beyond single-family homes if these restrictions are in place? This is from Higher Spirit. That's a great point. Uh, Southern California, particularly Los Angeles, is known for these type of rent control policies. And to be frank, there is a lot more vitriol towards landlords now than I think there's ever been. There's like, there's hate groups out there that target real estate investors. And at times they've even targeted bigger pockets because we raise rent when it comes to the market rent. Now, different people have different political opinions on why that should be. But what I would like to maybe pause it for you to all think about 
is if you buy a property and you expect the cash flow to be a certain amount, and then the government changes the rules and say, nope, now we're going to put rent control. You can't raise the rent, but your taxes keep going up and inflation keeps going up. And that $400 a month that you thought was really good money is now worth the same as $200 a month after inflation. You can find yourself in a big jam. Can you guys see where I'm getting at here? It's dangerous to get a couple properties and think that you're good to go because these restrictions do get put in place. Higher spirit to you. Here's something I would think about. If you're going the multifamily road, that might not be the best market for you to be investing in. Okay. That's a great market to house hack in. You own the house and you rent out parts of it. So you are keeping your own living expenses really, really low. You're generating additional rental income for yourself. And some of those rules of protect tenants don't apply the same because you own the house as your primary residence. You have more rights in that case than being a pure landlord. So what I'm getting at is different markets have different strategies. We talked about Joshua Tree earlier. That's clearly a short-term rental strategy. The same like house hacking wouldn't work that great in Joshua Tree because there's probably not a ton of people looking to live there all the time. That's a vacation destination. LA is strong on the house hacking side. It's strong on just owning versus renting. If you just buy a house and you're not even an investor, it's going to be a lot weaker on the cash flow side. So if you're looking to to scale something and grow more cash flow, you probably want to get out of a market that has those kind of restrictions and get into a different one. I would recommend my book, Long Distance Real Estate Investing, because I lay out the systems that you need to invest in a different market. Now, I do invest in California. I live here. Someone mentioned to California, but it's probably a shot at me because I live in California, but I also invest in other states. And I know I have different strategies in the different areas that I'm going to. And I don't think that that should be any kind of a shock to people. You should expect different children to have different personalities, right? Well, every market I invest in has its own personality. Real estate has a personality itself. And we want to use a strategy that works best for the personality of the market that we're in. Some of them are long-term plays where you get a lot of appreciation. Some of them are shorter-term plays where you're going to get a lot more cash flow. Sometimes it's a short-term rental play. So you're going to put more time, but you're going to get a higher return. And other times it's a set it and forget it. I'm not going to make a ton of money, but man, it's going to be easy. And I'm going to forget that I even own the house. So understand the market you're investing in and pick a strategy that's going to work for that specific market. And you can avoid some of these frustrations. Thank you for your question or your comment there, higher spirit. All right. Are these questions and replies resonating with any of you where you think of the same thing? Why does David keep hating on cash flow? Well, I hope I just explained I don't hate on cash flow. I hate on the way that people look at cash flow as it's going to be their savior from life. Or maybe you're like, yes, praise David. I have been thinking the same thing and this makes sense. Whatever it is you're thinking, we want to hear your honest perspective. Tell us in the comments what you're thinking. Maybe you didn't get clarity on something and I can explain it more. Maybe you want to hear more about a certain topic or you hear my view and you want to know what information I'm using to present that view from. I want to interact with you guys and I want you to be a part of the podcast because this is your show. You are here and I am here to help make you money. So let me help you do that. Go on the on the comments, leave one. Also, subscribe to this page and please like the channel. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. We know, and you all know, why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability. With Plaid certified tenant income and assets reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. All tenant screening and verification is paid by the tenant and done through the desktop and mobile app. It's time to say goodbye to gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. And as a matter of fact, all Bigger Pockets pros have Rent Ready included in your pro membership. If you're not a pro, Rent Ready is offering you 50% off of their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2024. That's R E N T R E D I.com using code BP2024. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, in the year 2024 to save 50% off of one year of Rent Ready. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with creditworthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. Hey, David. My name is Nick Vinson. Um, I'm from the Shreveport, Louisiana area. So I'm new to real estate. We just acquired our first property back in December of 2021. Um, we just called a lot of for sale by owner signs until we found somebody that was willing to give us a good deal. Um, we got the house at $50,000. I put 20% down, so 10 down. We owe $40,000 on the house. Um, the house appraised for $78,000, so there was a lot of meat on the bone when we bought it. Uh, we did about eight k worth of rehab, got the tenants in there. Um, didn't even have to put a for rent sign up. We had some people that knew us and ended up getting into the property. So that one has worked out pretty well. We just got our first rent check on it uh, last month. 
So I've also been trying to get into a partnership for a couple of years now. And I guess because of that deal and a couple of other things that I've been doing, um, there's a guy I've been talking to and we decided to go in a partnership together. I found an off-market deal. And I guess here's kind of the meat of my question. So on this off-market deal, we are looking, uh, the house is $120,000. Um, that area appraises for anywhere between one hundred and eighty dollars to $220,000. The house is actually in really good condition. The guy just wants to get rid of the property. Um, it's just a, a very good deal. So I was going to do it on my own, but I figured it was a good opportunity to get into a partnership with somebody. We've been talking about this for a while. So the options that we have and what I've been curious about is do we obtain this property um, using a DSCR loan? I was going to go through Caliber's SmartVest line. Um, that way they're not looking at debt to income and anything like that. And then once we obtain the property, do we then do a cash out refinance for the leftover equity that's just sitting there? And then go out and obtain more properties because that's our goal is to obtain rental properties. And along the way, if we could do a fix and flip, do it. But, you know, really, we want to do buy and holds um, and really get up to like 50, 60 rental properties. I see this as a really good opportunity for our partnership to get going. So the options that we're looking at is that one, the more, you know, mortgage route or two, we have an option to where my partner can leverage his house. He's got something that is worth about 160. And so we have friends with the president of a bank that is willing to give us um, a line of credit on that money. And we can go over there and buy that house. And then we were thinking about just selling it within a month. The market's hot. And that's a really good bulletproof area. Selling the house, taking that $100,000 equity, and then going out and buying you know, four or five other properties off of that one. Our area, we can generally get properties anywhere between the range of like 40 to 60, maybe even $80,000, and then really move from there. So my question is, which option is the best for quickness and to just be more efficient in what our goal is, which is to just obtain more rental properties? Um, With option one, I do have to put out some cash reserves. It would be about, we're going to do a split on it. So it'd be $15,000 from um, my reserve cash and the same for him on option one. Option two, I don't have to do that at all. Like basically I found the deal. He's going to put up the money, then we sell it and then we do a split on it. And then that's going to be the money we use for our company to continue to buy more properties. So I hope that question kind of makes sense um, and what the dilemma seems to be. Um, I'm leaning more towards getting the property and renting it out because why not? You do the cash out refinance, have a tenant in there paying the mortgage. My partner's leaning more towards like it'll look really good for us to go ahead and obtain a property and then sell it and then our company be worth, you know, anywhere between eighty to a hundred thousand dollars from the jump that we started and then go out here and obtain more properties. But um I just want to make sure that what we're doing, because it's such a good deal that we're going to be in a good position to move forward to really start loading ourselves up with as many properties as we can. Um, we'd like, you know, within this year to get anywhere between like six to 10. And just from this one deal, I think that we're going to be able to do that. So I would really, really appreciate uh, your advice on this situation. Uh, thank you so much. Your content is amazing. Uh, thank you, David. Yes, my content is amazing. Thank you for that.
No, that's not true. This is just real estate that we're talking and I do this all the time. So this is actually pretty simple. Your question is what's amazing. And you listeners that are listening, you are what's amazing. So let's talk about this dilemma that you find yourself in. It is the classic, should I hold or should I sell? Um, I've got a way that I like to analyze this and I'm going to break that down. I've probably done this before. So I'll go through that and then I will try to apply it to your specific situation. So when asking the question of should I sell it or should I keep it, you did a good job of explaining if I sell it, I can get a bunch of cash and that can sort of launch me into the business. But if I keep it, I can have a uh, a rental property. The first thing that I want to say is what is your biggest challenge? Is it finding more deals? Is it not having enough money to buy them? Is it not getting lending? You basically want to know what your biggest challenge is and work around that. So for a long time for me, my biggest challenge was financing. It was just very hard to get banks to let me borrow because I had so many rental properties already. They saw it as a bigger risk. I know that's weird because you think the person who owns more would be better at it, but that's not how they see it. Like As a side note, there is a bank that will remain unnamed in Jacksonville, Florida like six years ago that said, we don't want any more exposure to residents residential real estate, we think it's going to collapse. So we're only giving commercial loans. Like, Tell me how that one worked out when it comes to residential real estate. So no one really knows how these things are going to work out. But my point is, I would start with someone that would give me money and I would find out where will they underwrite and I would have to go make my strategy work there. So this idea of knowing what's the most scarce resource will help you with making the decision when it's specific to you and your partner versus just everybody else who's listening here. I'm assuming that money is probably more scarce than deals because you've mentioned that you found these first two deals relatively quickly. So I'm going to give you advice operating under that assumption that it's easier for you to find deals than it is to find money. So now we're starting to see things weighing towards selling it might be better. But let's not jump to that right away. Let's go through my ROI versus ROE matrix. So when it comes to selling a property, I have clients ask me this all the time, right? Like, especially if they're in California, those are the ones I love because they come to me and say, Hey, I own this rental property or I own my primary residence. David, should you list it and sell it for me and we can reinvest the money or should I keep it and rent it out? The first thing that we want to figure out is, is this a property you want to keep? If the answer is no, we look for a way to justify selling it. If the answer is yes, we look for a way to justify holding it. So what goes into, is this a property that I want to keep? Well, the first thing is, is it a headache? Are you going to get bad tenants? Do you have uh, legal restrictions like what uh, I think it was Higher Spirit mentioned in the comments about Los Angeles's um, rental controls? Uh, is the property itself just a money pit and things keep going wrong? Is it in an area that you don't want to own in long term? Okay. If the answer is I don't want to keep this property, like that's that should become pretty apparent as you're asking yourself those questions. Um, is it going to appreciate? Is it on the way up? Are rents going up and is the value going up? Now, let's say the answer to those questions becomes yes, I do want to keep this property. Um, the rents are going up. It's appreciating. It's no headache at all. It's in a great location. I've already fixed everything up. It's performing wonderfully. At that point, we start asking the question of, okay, how much money can we pull out of it and then go put that into the next deal? So to sum this up, the first question you ask is, is this a property I want to keep? If the answer is no, just sell it. You're not losing real estate when you sell. You are gaining equity through the form of capital to put into new real estate. 
Okay, so as long as you buy something new, you're not losing a property when you sell it, which is how I want you to look at this deal you guys have under contract. There's 100,000 in equity there. You're gonna turn that into more rental properties. So selling it isn't losing a rental, it's gaining potentially more as long as you can find them, which is why I started this question off by asking, can you still get deals? Now, the next thing we work on is our ROI versus ROE matrix. So ROI is return on investment, ROE is return on equity. So what I would like you to do, Nicholas, is to look at your average return on investment that you can get if you invest a hundred grand in Louisiana, wherever you are. Let's say you can get a 10% return buying real estate. So if you have a hundred thousand and you can go put that into investing at a, a 10% return, you figure out what your cash flow would be on that money. Now we would look at if you keep the property and refinance it, what would the return be on your equity? And this is the same question that we ask when someone comes to me and they say, hey, David, I've got a house worth $1.1 million in the Bay Area and I owe 500000 on it. So this is a person with 600000 or so in equity in their property. And they're saying, well, it cash flows you know, um, 500 bucks a month. So it's not a bad deal. I can rent it out and I can make 500 bucks a month. Well, what I do is I run some numbers here. Okay. And I'm going to do that for you right now. If you have a property making $500 a month times 12 months in a year, that's $6,000 a year you're making in, in your return. If you divide that by the 600000 that we have in theoretical equity, you're getting a 1% return on that equity. So that means if you invested that 600000 somewhere else and you only got $6,000 a year, you'd be getting a 1% return on, on investment which is bad. So in this case, even though it would cash flow $500 a month, I'm going to advise that person, you should sell that property, buy more with the 600000 that you'll get a higher return on than what you're currently getting. Basically, your equity is lazy and it's doing nothing for you. Now, some properties make your investment into that property and make no bones about it. Your equity is an investment. Don't just look at the capital you put into it. Also look at the capital that's already in it from the form of equity from what either you made it worth more on the rehab or it's grown from appreciation. And ask yourself, how hard is that money working? Now, if someone's in California, you're more than welcome to mention this uh, when you email me or contact me and I'll run you through this. But if you're in a different area, look up what return on income versus return on equity is. So let's sum all of this up. The first question you should be asking yourself, Nicholas, do I want to own the property? What's the location? Is it a headache? Is it going to cause me a lot of problems? Is it a flood zone? Is there anything about it that I don't like? If you do like the property, the next question would be, how much of a return would I get on this property versus if I invest that $100,000 somewhere else? Assuming that the appreciation is largely equal because you're staying in the same market, the decision becomes pretty easy. You invest in the place where you're going to get a higher return and more cash flow on that same money. Now, the only caveat to this would be, like I said earlier, if it's super hard to find a deal, so you sell it and you have a hundred grand, but you can't buy anything else, maybe it makes more sense to keep it. Or if deals are everywhere, but you got no money, even if the return would be good, maybe you can make that hundred grand work more somewhere else. So you sell it, even though the return on equity was solid. There's a lot of things that factor into play, but I love that you asked this question because it helped me break down how my mind processes these options. And I'm doing the same thing, just at a bit of a bigger scale. So I'm selling 30 something properties right now. And I'm going to 1031 those into different properties that are going to be in different markets where they're going to appreciate more. And the, I'm going to have less headache. 
So I looked at my portfolio and I said, man, these 30 properties in this area, it's constantly emails from the property management company saying this person's not paying. Um, COVID restrictions have affected us here. This just broke. This is going on. It's nonstop something all the time. So when I asked the question, do I want to keep it? The answer was no. I do not want to keep it. I want to sell it. I looked at how much equity I had in the portfolio and I realized the same thing I just did with you. I'm making like a 2% return on my equity. The misleading piece is I'm making like a 70% return on my initial investment. So when you only look at ROI, it looks like I'm crushing it from all the rent increases that I've had. But the portfolio has grown so much in equity from the burring that I did as well as natural appreciation that my money's not working very hard. So I'm going to sell it and I'm going to re-put it into properties where it will have to work harder, get me a better return. I'll have a higher upside and less headache. I hope that you can do the same. All right. Next question comes from Michael O'Brien in Canada, otherwise known as Canadia. David, I love your show and the content has helped me get to this point. However, in discussing additional properties with my mortgage broker, he is suggesting I am close to my limit of residential property loans with my debt ratio. He said that in order to get additional properties, I will have to look at commercial mortgages with higher rates. Is there a way around this? Thank you. I have five properties and seven doors. Okay, Michael, I'm going to break this one down for you pretty simply. Um, first off, when he's talking about debt ratio, this is or uh, debt to income ratio, what we're talking about is as mortgage brokers, we look at, okay, you make this much money and you have this much debt that shows up on your credit. It doesn't matter how much actual debt you have. It matters how much is documented. And we come up with a ratio that says, at the end of the day, this is how much Michael has left of the money that he brings home. We come up with a percentage. We add whatever your mortgage is going to be to that. And we make sure it stays underneath whatever number it needs to be, 40%, 45%. They kind of bounce around for different products. And we say, based off of your debt, you can buy a house that costs this much at this interest rate. Now, the problem becomes when you keep buying real estate, if you're not making money uh, on taxes or you're not claiming the money or you had a bad year on that real estate, the debt from the property stays there, but the income does not continue to increase. And so your debt to income ratio starts to become too weak to get approved for additional properties. Debt to income ratio, I want you guys to all understand this, is a metric that determines your ability to repay the money that the bank is letting you borrow or the lender is letting you borrow. What you can look at are debt service coverage ratio loans, which is something that my brokers does a lot of, where we look at the income from the property to repay the debt, not the income from you. So if you're going to buy a short-term rental and it's going to generate $6,000 a month of income, we take that income and we we weigh that against how much it's going to cost to own the property, which might be three or $4,000 a month. And we qualify you that way. If that's what he's talking about with commercial loans, um, that might be your only option. Typically, commercial loans are like 5-1 adjustable rate mortgages. It kind of sucks because as interest rates go up, your payment goes up. Our products are 30-year fixed rate. They're just like what you're used to seeing, but the rate will be a little bit higher. Um, I think in general, people make too big a deal out of this. Like Those rates that you get on conventional mortgages are incredibly low. They're awesome. They're not normal. No one's lending money at that rate. So once you get to more properties, you should have more experience and you should be able to find better deals and you should be able to make it work with an interest rate that's maybe half a point, one point, one and a half points, whatever it is, higher. So before I went to commercial, which is an adjustable rate mortgage, I would look at the DSCR loans, which are 30-year fixed rate. And I would ask your mortgage 
broker if they have access to those. If not, I would look for a mortgage broker that does. All right, we have time for one more question. This comes from Desmond in Omaha, Nebraska. Hi, David. My name is Desmond, and I just wanted to start by saying thank you for fielding questions like this. You know, I really love the format of the show and listening to other investors um, and what they're struggling with and your insight into their situation. So really appreciate that. So kind of jumping into my question, um, I'm located in the Midwest, 24 years old, and my background is in chemical engineering, which is currently my primary source of income. I'm just getting started in real estate investing, so I don't currently have any investment properties in my portfolio, but I'm interested primarily in buy and hold single family rentals where I ideally obtain properties using a burst strategy. So to give a little bit more context on my situation, I graduated college debt-free in 2020. That was largely due to academic and athletic scholarships I had and working throughout college. And all of that allowed me to live well below my means um, after graduation and save a large majority of my paycheck when I started working. Um, In 2021, I bought a single family home that I live in, um, proposed to my now fiance and started saving for wedding and honeymoon related expenses. Um, I've known for a long time that I wanted to get involved in real estate investing and have been listening to this podcast and reading books about real estate, but I had to use the money I was saving on other important life things like buying my primary residence, getting an engagement ring, paying for part of the upcoming wedding and honeymoon and those related expenses. Um, that kind of leads me to my question. So in 12 months, I think I'll have saved $40,000. I estimate I'll need for a down payment on my first single family rental and to cover the cost of the rehab. And then anything over that $40,000, I'll tap into the equity on my home and use a HELOC to finance. Now that I'm finally so close to being able to start my journey into real estate investing, I'm starting to have major FOMO where I see prices going up and other investors swooping in on deals in my area. And it makes me wonder if I should try to get creative in financing so I can start investing sooner or stick to the plan I have in place and save up now so I can start in 12 months. What's your advice on this? Do you think I should try to get in sooner or are there some other practical things I can do in the 12 months I'll be saving? I've already started networking with other investors in my area and I'm beginning to build relationships with real estate agents and lenders. Thanks in advance for your insight on my situation. All right. Thank you, Desmond. This is a great question. I think a lot of people are in this same boat. I think you're wise to notice that prices are going up as well as interest rates. And we don't know what's going to happen, but all indications are that the Fed is going to continue rising rates and that prices are probably going to continue to go up. Could they go down because rates are going up? Sure. No one knows. My best bet is that they will just go up slower than what they were going up because of rates going higher. People like me are still going to buy them. And so your FOMO might actually be somewhat healthy. You need to get involved. Rather than trying to save another 40K, what if you just found a way to buy a house with less than 40K? My advice to you would be you house hack. You need to go buy a primary residence and put a smaller percentage down on that property so you don't have to save up all the money. You don't have to go buy an investment property property, put 20, 25% down. If you still don't have enough to do that, ask about different loans where there's down payment assistance available. And if there isn't any of that available, I would ask a family member if you could borrow some money from them and then pay it back. Now you should have no problem paying that money back because your own housing expenses are lower since you're house hacking instead of paying the rent. If you're in a position where you say, no, I already own a house. I don't want another one. Well, Can you sell that house and use the money to buy the property you want? Can you rent out the house that you are living in now and then go house hack to get your housing expenses lower? What sacrifice are you willing to make to make this happen? 
You're going to sacrifice something. My advice is you should always sacrifice comfort, okay? Don't sacrifice your future. Don't sacrifice wealth building. Sacrifice the fact that you don't need at 24 years old to have a nice big house that you could be living in right now and try to get your fiance on board with how you guys are going to spend a couple years living beneath your means and being less comfortable so you can have a way better future later. In other words, there's a way to move your money around. You have some equity in the house you have right now. You have a housing expense that you don't need to have that you can reduce by house hacking. You can lower your down payment by buying a primary residence instead of an investment property, get your foot in the door. Then as those properties go up in value, you can access that to buy the next rental property and you can get some momentum going. Find a way to get this initial momentum that you need started by making some sacrifices. If you got through school with no student debt on athletic scholarships and working, I don't think you're going to have a problem with this. Also, awesome that you're a chemical engineer. My uh, lending partner, Christian Bachelor, is also a chemical engineer, and you guys have a very unique way of looking at the world. All right. Thanks again for taking the time to send me your questions. We have had a great response from our audience, and I encourage you all to ask more questions. You can do this by going to biggerpockets.com slash David and submitting your video or your written question for me to answer. Look, we can't make this show if you don't give me content to go by. I can't help you or the rest of the community if I don't know what questions you guys have. Real estate feels scary. It feels overwhelming. It feels challenging, but it doesn't have to. It's actually one of the most simple ways to build wealth there is. Let me help you do that. Let us at Bigger Pockets help you do that as well. Please give us a subscribe on the channel. Share this with other people that you know. Let me know in the comments what you thought. And if you want to ask me a question directly, you can always find me on social media. I'm at David Green 24 pretty much everywhere. You can also send me a message through the Bigger Pockets platform. Thanks, everybody. I will see you on the next episode. Stay focused and keep growing. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.